Hello, and welcome to Unsolicited History. I'm your host, Jonathan Newby. During our first episode in the history of New York, which, if I'm being honest, I'll admit I haven't the slightest idea on how I'll lay out this dense history into a plausible 20-episode season, we'll begin with an overview of some third-party players involved in New York's founding. And I say founding in the context of a bunch of white people columbusing the New World. We'll begin with the various Native American nations, tribes, etc., and for the purpose of this history lesson, we'll do some gross generalizations and lump them up fully into two tribes, the Lenape and the Iroquois. These two nations will continue to play a pivotal role in New York's history until well beyond the Revolutionary War. I'm not sure how deep into New York's history we'll actually be going, though, so tame your imagination for just a moment. We'll spend more time today and overall on the Lenape than on the Iroquois. The Lenape belonged to the Algonquin Linguistic Group, which was once the most widespread linguistic group east of the Mississippi. In case you decide to fact-check me, I'd like to clarify that the Lenape spoke variations and dialects of Algonquin, but they weren't the same as the Algonquin people. Those tribes lived in what is present-day Ontario and Quebec. I do want to insert a quick side note and mention that we're simply setting the stage for the beginning of European arrival to the New York region, and once we have our lovely Dutch touchdown and begin settling, We'll steer back to the Lenape and the Iroquois and the power struggle between the two nations, or conglomerates of tribes really, and how it played out in the larger picture that is the history of New York. Now before we swing into the settlement of the Dutch and the first eight directors of New Amsterdam, and before changing into the hands of the English in 1647, I want to slap a few tidbits of history on you, pre-spring 1624. Nearly a century before the arrival of the Dutch, a plucky Italian explorer named Giovanni de Verrazzano was commissioned by King Francis I of France to explore a route to the Pacific. The Paisano found his way first to North Carolina, and then in 1524 he popped into the New York Harbor. The land that would one day be named New Amsterdam and then renamed New York by the English was dubbed New Angoulême by Verrazzano, in commemoration of his patron, King Francis, Count of New Angoulême. Before I continue, I'd like to make another side note, which, if you haven't caught on yet, will be an overarching theme in this series. Side notes. My French is almost non-existent, and I did learn to count to ten in French, but that's pretty much the extent of my knowledge. What I'm getting at is that throughout the series I'll be faced with the daunting task of pronouncing names of peoples and places of other linguistic inclinations, and though I'd give it my Harvard best, I will almost surely come up short more than once. This is equal parts plea and warning. Let it go. And we're back. Verrazano stumbled across the New York Bay, notably the first white dude to cross it off his bucket list. Some other stuff happens, and then he's back in Europe. Fast forward again to 1528, and he's on his last, not that he knew, voyage into America. This time, our Italian skipper has his brother along for the ride, which sucks for both of them. Verrazano and several crew members head ashore on one of the lower Antilles. Unbeknownst to them, that island is packed full of cannibals. One that, if you'll permit me the liberty to infer, loved white meat. Verrazano and his compatriots are added to the evening's menu as baby brother and crew watch helplessly from the boat. I should add that I also came across conflicting arguments and accounts that this is false and his demise actually came at the end of a noose, being caught, tried, and executed for piracy. I prefer the cannibal a la carte version though. Now let's fast forward some 81 years and land on our next plucky wide-eyed white boy, Henry Hudson. In 1609, this was the first recorded exploration by the Dutch of the New York Bay Area. He had been trying to find the Northwest Passage for the Dutch East India Company, and upon discovering the New York Bay Area and all its natural resources, he instead reported to his overlords that, boy, this might be a dope place to plant the Dutch flag and exploit the hell out of the beaver population for commercial gain. 
the Money Hungry Dutch began sending commercial private missions to the area the following year. I'm ready to touch on the eight directors now, so we'll skip past the expeditions of Adrian Bloch and Hendrik Christensen between the years of 1611 and 14 and just summarize the following. Their surveying of the land between the 38th and 45th parallel resulted in etc etc and their naming of the region New Amsterdam. This surveying was conducted as a prelude to anticipated settlement by the Dutch Republic. That would happen a decade later though, in 1624. We've arrived to our first director. Homeboy's name was Cornelius Jacobson May, probably a nerd in middle school. He was named the first director for his efforts in positioning the newly arrived settlers throughout the New Netherlands colony. Landing with 30 families, he dispersed them to several forts between the Delaware, Hudson, and Connecticut rivers. May's tenure as director was short-lived, and in 1625, he was replaced by Willem Berstholt. Immediately upon arrival, he was unpopular with the settles, and in short order, was recalled from his post as well. Replacing him was our third director of the New Netherlands colony, Peter Minuit. Little old Peter was uh, sent over to the colony by his employer in 1625 in search of tradable goods, besides beaver belts, of course. He returned to his master Tiet later that year, and upon hearing of the disdain that the settlers had for Cornelius May, was appointed the third director on May 4th, 1626. Immediately, he sailed back to the Americas to take up his new post. Now, I could go into a full tangent just on Minuit's history, have speculation, half historical context. I could mention the backdrop of the times in Netherlands. I could also discuss the Spanish occupation of the Netherlands and then mention the history of the region's unrest, which ultimately ended with the establishment of the Kingdom of Belgium. I won't do that though, because if I sunk my teeth into every subplot that presented itself, I'd still be on 1648 by the time my hairs are turning gray. So the mystical powers that be somehow aligned and Peter Minuit left his hometown of Whistle amid Spanish occupation and found himself in the employ of the Dutch West India Company. Mr. Minuit wanted to legitimize the Dutch claims to the land and after speaking with the local Lenape, he hotly purchased Manhattan for 60 guilders, which is approximately $24. On the southern tip of his new purchase, he founded New Amsterdam, where he consolidated the settlements scattered throughout the region, which was almost surely a response to the battle at Fort Orange. All the settlers were called to the newly built New Amsterdam, with only traders and men meant to assist the Mohicans in their struggle with the Iroquois. Peter, a large, abrasively dull man, it seemed, had a nose for trade, but at the cost of settlement and farming efforts. During his tenure, over 40,000 beaver pelts were exported, but the population by 1628 had capped off at about 270 residents of Manhattan. So it came to be that in the West India Company's infinite wisdom, the patroon system was established. The charter of Freedoms and exemptions declared that any member of the company who could bring to and settle 50 persons over the age of 15 in New Netherland should receive a liberal grant of land to hold as a patroon or lord. Now, keep this in mind because it will come around several more times before we're done, at least with the episode. For now, though, we'll move on to Peter's dismissal. He was accused of favoritism and assisting some of the patroons and cutting through loopholes and smuggling and all that good stuff. So, in 1631, P.D. Boy was recalled to Holland, stripped of his title, and replaced by Sebastian Jossen Kroll in 1632. Kroll the Troll arrived in New Amsterdam for the first time during the tenure of Jacobson May. He was commander of Fort Orange prior to his post as the Director General of the New Netherlands and then returned to his post afterwards. Most of the history I found on Kroll related to his religious inclinations or his assistance in purchasing of land under the patroon system. We'll move on for now to Kroll's successor, Wouter van Twiller. Twiller 
as large as he was incompetent, occupied his post from 1633 until 1638. He began as a warehouse clerk, but being a relation to Killian van Rensselaer, nope, that's not how you pronounce that name, let's try it one more time, was employed to ship livestock to the company on the Hudson River. He had made two voyages to the colonies. Due to his familiarity with the geography and his personal ties with Van Rensselaer, he was elevated to the West India Company to Governor of New Netherlands. His time in office was marred with ineptitude and incompetence. Real quick, let's circle back to Jansen Kroll. Kroll's time in office is unmemorable, less a few sales, including ranging the purchase of land for Killian Rensselaer. Rensselaer acquired land north and south of Fort Orange, but not actually Fort Orange which, just like the island of Manhattan, belonged to the West India Company. Remember Killian. He will come back up. Okay, so Twiller was incompetent, right? The man had no experience in governing and was a royal screw-up in that department, but it wasn't all bad for Twiller. He amassed a small fortune while in office, and his vice director didn't like it one bit. Before sealing the nail on the historical coffins of Twiller, it's worth mentioning Homeboy went and lost both Connecticut and Massachusetts land to the English. First, in July of 1633, the English settled on present-day Hartford, and though Twiller sent some 70 men to give them the boot, he was unable to dislodge them. Then, again in 1635, he found himself amidst land disputes with the English, and again failed to hold on to land in present-day Massachusetts after sending a small force to flick off the Brits. So despite his personal accumulation of wealth, or perhaps because of it, his vice director voiced complaints to the Dutch, and in 1637, he was sacked and replaced by William Kieft. And kids, let me tell you, this story gets a lot worse before it gets better. Up until this point, of course, there's conflict. Most of it, however, was localized and almost always the result of fighting between Native American tribes due to trading concerns. The Mohawks drove off the Mohicans in 1629 from the area around Fort Orange. The backdrop to the Keefe's arrival in New Netherland in April 38 was an unprofitable colony for the Dutch West India Company. The year before, the Dutch, under the leadership of Twiller, had lost the northern territories of New Netherlands to English. This is in large part due to the eradication of the Pequa Nation, the Dutch allied Native Americans. Keefe was also inexperienced in governance, and I'm sure that didn't help, and his first plan to reduce the deficit was to demand payment from the tribes living in the region. In this escalation to war, there was a lot of eye-for-eye, tick-for-tack killing, and so many names of inconsequence to the overall story, so I won't really gum it up with names. Just know there's a lot of revenge murders between the years of 1640 and 1642, and that brought the situation to a boil. On February 23rd, 1643, Kieft launched an attack on the Lenape refugee camp. The Iroquois tribes had driven them south the year before, and Kieft fell upon them first at Pavonia. The total number of dead varied, but approximately a hundred men, women, and children lay butchered. A written account of the battle says, Infants were torn from their mother's breasts, hacked to pieces in the presence of their parents, pieces thrown into the fire and in the water, and other sucklings, being bound to small boars, were cut, stuck, and pierced, and miserably massacred in a way that would move a heart of stone. This sent the native population over the edge, and over a dozen Lenape tribes united in retaliation. In the fall of 1643, 1,500 natives invaded New Netherland, destroying two decades of Dutch settlements and putting most Dutch they came under under the knife. In retaliation to the incursion, the Dutch forces killed over 500 Lenape over the winter. The butchery from both sides drove many Dutch refugees into New Amsterdam, and slowly settlement turned against Kieft. 
In March 1644, Keefe hired an English captain named John Underhill to fight the natives. Underhill led a force of 130 Dutch and English soldiers to Lenape village in present-day Pound Ridge, New York, and overnight they attacked with fire and between 500 and 700 natives were massacred. After the massacre, four tribes concluded a peace with Keefe on April 6, 1944. The war would drag on for another year before more tribes began suing for peace, and it wasn't until August 21, 1645, that all parties agreed on a truce. Keefe's war had set the colony back, costing both financially and in terms of population. Men who had not been killed had elected to sail back to Europe. The Dutch West India Company had decided to replace Keefe in 1645, and in 1647, Peter Stuyvesant arrived in New Netherland as the last director under Dutch control. Peter Stuyvesant was born in 1610 in Peperga, Friesland, Netherlands. His father was a reformed Calvinist minister. Remember that. Calvinism is very important to Peter. It's a major branch of the Protestant church, and it had broken off with the Catholic church in the 16th century. Prior to his appointment in New Netherland, uh, Stuyvesant had been the director of the island of Curacao in the Caribbean Sea. During an attack on the Portuguese island of St. Martin in 1644, he lost his right leg to cannibal fire. He had his leg amputated right below the knee. The injury had forced Stuyvesant back to Holland for recovery in the fall of 1644. It was back in Holland where he had a wooden peg leg fitted as a prosthesis. The Dutch West India Company, after having expressed admiration for his courage and Roman sacrifice, appointed him the governor of New Netherland Colony. He was tasked with ensuring that no further acquisition of Dutch lands by the English and also reestablishing the relations with the Native Americans. Upon arriving in Manhattan, Peter said, I shall reign over you as a father governs his children. And though he, throughout his time in office, did make many reforms, he was known for having a short, ill temper and ruling with absolutism. Dude issued proclamations against desecration of the Sabbath, intemperance, and quarreling. He also forbade the selling of guns and ammunition to Indians. But the really bad proclamation was no selling of spirits to the natives and no selling of spirits whatsoever after 9 p.m., Reminds me of the beach town I grew up in. The past few directors were incompetent and lacked experience in governance. What they lacked, Stuyvesant had an abundance of. New Amsterdam at the time was broke and its infrastructure in dilapidation. In short time, Stuyvesant implemented a system of taxes to replenish the colony's treasury. He appointed fire wardens, building surveyors, and imposed penalties on those who attempted to fraud Native American laborers. Yet for all this, he lacked charisma. He kept all at a distance and ruled with an autocratic fist. It was with great resistance that he yielded to popular demand and assembled a council of nine men. Their only power was to counsel the governor. On January 30th, 1649, Charles I of England was beheaded, and England became a commonwealth. This would cause concern for the Dutch colony because a war with England would almost surely bring all Dutch under English control. But in the meantime, the Council of Nine Men could no longer tolerate Stuyvesant's absolutism. They decided to send Adrian van der Donk to Holland to seek amends. This was done in secret, of course, but somehow Stuyvesant caught wind of the plan and burst into van der Donk's chambers. He seized the papers that had been drawn up and imprisoned him. Stuyvesant's rights director, van, and I'm going to probably butcher the name, Dorkligen, and a delegation formed by the people protested the arrest and demanded that he be released on bail. Stuyvesant, ever the absolutist, refused. Around the same time this was happening, two men from the previous administration, that is, from William Keefe's administration, two men named Kuiter and Malin, were appealing some charges. 
They had petitioned for an appeal before the people, but thinking this would place his own authority in questioning, Stuyvesant refused. Instead, he acted as both prosecutor and judge, accused the men of instigating war with the natives, counseling the mortgage of Manhattan to the English, and of threatening Keefe with personal violence. Stuyvesant sought the death penalty for both men. And actually, before I finish this anecdote, the reason I'm diving into some of these examples is so you'll really get a sense of the rift that is growing between Stuyvesant and the Dutch population of the colony. I say Dutch population because there are also English settlers living on this land, and as the Dutch colonists became less and less supportive of Stuyvesant, the English colonists slowly became more sympathetic. This will also lead to the end of Dutch rule in the Netherlands. Anyways, Keeter and Malin are spared the death sentence at the insistence of Stuyvesant's council, but they both have their land confiscated and are banished from the New Netherland. They arrive to Holland as banished criminals, but after appeal to the home government, they have their sentence suspended. Malin returns to Manhattan Island with papers stating his sentence had been suspended. During all this, the Dutch in Manhattan began clamoring for more freedoms from under Stuyvesant's thumb. He needed an ally for his autocratic rule, so he began making arrangements to meet with governors of English colonies. He further insulted the Dutch population when he elected two Englishmen to serve as delegates for this meeting. His secretary, George Baxter, quite right, is also English. On September 7, 1650, they depart Manhattan and arrive in Hartford four days later. During this delegation, boundary lines were drawn up between the English and the Dutch, and it heavily favored the English. Though he did report the results of the negotiations, a copy of the treaty was not provided. The colonists were livid, and they wanted no part in a treaty that they had no part in forming. Complaints were again sent to Holland, asking for more popular rights and an end to Stuyvesant's tyrannical rule. Though the West India Company and the Dutch home government had some disdain for Stuyvesant's autocratic rule, they looked to their English neighbor, now a commonwealth, and decided they did not want to give up control in favor of popular freedoms. In this matter, you had Stuyvesant, West India Company, and the home Dutch government on one side, and you had the Dutch colonists and the vice director on the other. Stuyvesant had his vice director sacked and replaced him with Johannes Dijkman, someone who was more easily controlled by Stuyvesant. At this point in the story, Stuyvesant is now going to pick fights with patroons. Though they were self-governing and had special privileges under the Charter of Privileges, the despotic Stuyvesant refused to cede control. He insisted they fell under his command. But it was not until he picked a fight with the Swedish that the state's general recalled Stuyvesant to Holland to answer for his administration. At the time, though, the Dutch were in the eve of war with the English for their refusal to turn over royalist refugees, the family members of the late Charles I, and it was decided that a governor with military experience command the colony. So the call to Holland was revoked and Stuyvesant was spared the Inquisition. The first act by the British at this point was to issue the Navigations Act in October of 1651. The Navigation Acts were a series of laws that restricted colonial trade to England. Naval war soon erupted between the two powers, and Stuyvesant received orders to begin arming and training men, and that if the English colonists joined the motherland in the fight, the Dutch should make allies with Indian tribes and fight the English. Stuyvesant knew that he would easily be overpowered by the English colonies if it came to war, so Though he wrote letters to his fellow governor suggesting peace and continued trade, he began preparing his defenses. By 1654, conditions were ripe for revolt within New Amsterdam. Pirates swarmed the coast of Long Island, privateers in the employ of the British Commonwealth. Oliver Cromwell finally decided to bring the war between the two motherlands to the colonies and sent four armed ships across the Atlantic. The expedition was led by Major Sedgwick. He was instructed to dock at an English port and ascertain which English colonies would assist in tossing the Dutch out of North America. Several English colonies were eager to assist. New Haven, for example, promised 200 men. Plymouth pledged 50. 
and Massachusetts pledged 500 from within their borders. Just as the fleet was preparing to leave Boston Harbor on their excursion, news arrived that peace had been concluded between Holland and England. The invasion was called off, and Stuyvesant was, again, saved just in time. No sooner was bloodshed between the Dutch and English averted when conflict with the Swedish arose once more. The Swedish had settled the South River, modern-day Delaware River, and in June of 1654, they expelled the small Dutch garrison holding Fort Casimir. Later that year, Stuyvesant takes approximately 700 men south and lands a mile above the fort. The Swedish commander sees the futility in resisting such a large force and capitulates the next morning. The Swedish governor, having lost Fort Casimir, heads north with his forces and strengthens Fort Christina, a fort that had not been taken by the Swedish but purchased from the West India Company. Again, seeing resistance is futile, he capitulates, losing the last stronghold beheld by the Swedish on the Delaware River. Always a staunch Calvinist, Stuyvesant was never one to tolerate religions besides his own. His time as governor was synonymous with religious intolerance. I mean, the guy would lock you up and charge you a small fortune for preaching anything other than his kooky Calvinistic ideas. He did not allow anything to happen without first his authorization. He shut down a school once because the schoolmaster had presumed to open it without governmental permission. Stuyvesant wasn't all bad, though. In 1658, he opened a village in the north tip of Manhattan called Harlem. He built a road over the Wikisakik Trail, which curved through the swamps and rocks along Manhattan. The Dutch named the road Heerstrek, a road we now know as Broadway. During his tenure, Stuyvesant also purchased the lands on the west side of the North River, which is present-day Bergen, New Jersey. In 1658, the English began encroaching once again on the outer territories of New Netherlands. But it wasn't until September 6th, 1663, that, that an English emissary visited Gravestead, Hempstead, Flushing, and Jamaica with the proclamation that those places were no longer under the control of the Dutch, but had been annexed by the English in the Connecticut colony. Englishmen began arriving to villages in New Netherlands, those with majority English populations, and proclaiming they no longer had to pay taxes to their Dutch overlords. They were now instead subjects to His Majesty, King of the British Wankers. John Scott, an Englishman of questionable morals, petitioned King Charles II to grant him the role of governor of Long Island and the power to expel the bloody Dutch from the lands that are of true and undoubtable inheritance to his majesty. Scott got the go-ahead and sailed for America. He first visited villages in New Netherlands with majority English populations and found that those blokes didn't want to come under the thumb of the puritanical government of New Haven, and instead wanted to form their own governments, as loyal British subjects, of course. From there, he marched with force on Dutch villages with a majority Dutch population, and tried to compel them to abandon their allegiance to their Dutch overlords. He marched to Brooklyn, and then to Flatbush, stopping along the way to pick on children, beat up old men, and harass old spinsters. This part is speculation, of course, but I'm sure it can't be far from the truth. Stuyvesant, in response, sent three men to seek peace terms with the Philistine. Scott told these men, and I quote, This whole island belongs to the King of England. He has made a grant of it to his brother, Duke of York. He is coming with some ample force to take possession of his property. If it is not surrendered peacefully, he is determined to take not only the whole island, but also the whole providence of New Netherland. End quote. Stuyvesant, a man of action and ill-temper, somehow remained level-headed throughout this ordeal. 
Terms were presented to him by the English that English villages remain unmolested on Long Island and that English have free reign to access all Dutch towns on the island and mainland. Stuyvesant agreed to the terms. Up until this point, the Dutch lost every piece of land the English laid their fat fingers on. Those towns of majority English populations that didn't want to fall under Puritans' control elected John Scott as their leader, a role that Chumpadoodle happily accepted. New Haven was none too happy to hear that Scott would not be folding the villages into New Haven control and sent men to arrest him. After that, a fleet departed Boston to besiege Manhattan, under the command of Colonel Richard Nichols. The fleet entered New Amsterdam Harbor on August 27, 1664. Governor Withrop from New Haven came down with the fleet and sent over terms of surrender to Stuyvesant. Stuyvesant, to avoid a mutiny, tried to hide the letter from the townspeople. They got a hold of it nonetheless, and after seeing the terms offered by New Haven, began an uproar. When the English came within cannon shot of the island, instead of firing upon them, Stuyvesant was led away from the ramparts by a set of preachers and sent out a flag of truce. Requesting a meeting, the commanding officer replied, and I paraphrase, Screw you, I have the guns and boats. You want to talk? Surrender. Then we'll see what's up. Seeing that Manhattan was undefendable and wanting to avoid the folly of a siege, Stuyvesant finally capitulated. Colonel Nichols took control of the island and renamed it New York in honor of the Duke of York, the brother of the King of England. Immediately following the capitulation of New Amsterdam, Colonel Nichols sent a force up the river and took possession of Fort Orange, which he renamed Fort Albany. With the loss of New Amsterdam and then the remaining areas of control of New Netherland, the Dutch had lost their foothold on the New World. Peter Stuyvesant was recalled to Holland to answer for his conduct and the loss of the territory. His years of administration, for good or bad, were disregarded, and he was faced with one action, the loss of New Amsterdam, which, despite his actions, were severely condemned at home. This brings us to the end of our first episode. Next week, we'll discuss New York's first years under the command of the English and pick up right after the capitulation by Stuyvesant. I think we'll make it as far as the end of the century next week, covering the Treaty of Breda and the Third Anglo-Dutch War, which brought the island under Dutch control for a year before returning it back to England in 1674. We'll also spend more time on Native American tribes and hopefully dive a bit deeper than the superficial explanations from today's episode. We'll see you next week on another episode of Unsolicited History.